they went each to his own house. John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman, women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote in, with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And, at one, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Praise God for the reading of his word. We may now be seated. Thank you, Elder Doyen. Good morning, everyone. Those who are here in this hall, those who are watching this, perhaps you are on the ground floor or uh, wherever you are, you're watching this via uh, social media streaming, perhaps live or delayed, a pleasant good morning. The earliest manuscripts do not contain the cited text. So the cited text, the lesson for today, the passages that we will be studying were not in the earliest manuscripts. And so somehow it found its way into the later manuscripts. Some scholars would argue that it should not be in the biblical compilation. However, some, meaning those who are conservative Bible believers, would tolerate it and would say that uh, these texts, these passages, belongs to particularly the New Testament. And uh, since it does not contradict the gospel, moreover, it might have some validity through oral tradition. So, just allow me to just clarify some things regarding the, this controversy that this particular passage that we are about to study uh, that this should not be in the Bible and they are as they are not in the earliest manuscripts so please hear me as someone who is saying that I should read more about this uh, we should read and research more about this controversy, but just allow me to give a simplified explanation so that we will be able to settle uh, this issue before we dive into the passage itself. So just imagine uh, 
John, the writer, the beloved, the writer of this gospel. So he wrote in a parchment. So for example, this is the parchment. And uh, so that uh, this letter or this gospel would be read by a lot of people since during that time, printing press was not yet uh, available. And so it should be copied you know, by hand, handwritten by a lot of people, by different people, different groups. And so this will allow this material to be read by those who are even uh, far. And so just imagine this group, eh, because you're used to writing all caps. You know, maybe you're also used to texting all caps. You know, so you wrote it, you copied it, uh, all caps, you know, capitalized. So this group, uh, small letters, this group printed, this group uh, cursive. You know, some group will write it in a papyrus, some group will write it in a cardboard or whatever. And then some group will hear it orally, and then they will write them down as they listen to the dictation of someone who is reading uh, this, uh, what I wrote, and then you'll be writing them as you hear them. Of course, because we're humans, and they're humans, those who copied this and those who wrote, no? so there's this original manuscript written by John himself, and then we now have some copies of the original, which uh, sometimes we also call the copy of the original, just like when we photocopy a document, now we know that it is copied exactly from the, the original, right? And so, because they're humans as well, they might experience some errors while they wrote these manuscripts, the copy of the original manuscript. So some may have uh, misspelled some letters or some words, some may have missed the words, some may have uh, put some periods or where it should not be, and, and, and commas, etc., etc. And okay, so now we have a copy of the original manuscript and they were not uh, really perfect no? because they're they're just uh, uh, handed down to them. They just copied them, and they're subject to errors, to human errors. And so, to, to again, we have 10, for example, or we have 20. So to be able to have this uh, distributed to a lot more people, it needs to be recopied again. So we now have a second-generation copy of what was copied from the original, right? And so let's say one group, uh, one writer he was writing, oh wait, I, I, I believe I heard that uh, this, is, this story was told to me and uh, I should insert it in this particular part. Uh, so some, uh, I, I, they just copied what, what, what it was written. So now, one copy was brought to the, the, the now discovered, the now available printing press. And so they printed, this copy, uh, and then later on, they found copies that were copied from uh, one that has an insertion in it. And so today, we now have two different manuscripts. One, for example, with this passage that we're about to study, and another without it. So that is what now 
our Bibles, our modern translations would have. That's why if you have your Bibles with you and if it is in ESV, and I suggest that you bring your Bibles next time if you did not bring them today, and let's make it a habit to bring our Bibles every time we come to church because we're doing context Bible studies. I remember one time I forgot my book and I attended class and I was so regretful because I did not bring my book because everything that the teacher taught was there in the book. So when the teacher was asking, I don't know the answer because it was supposed to be in the book and I cannot follow the discussion of the teacher, but it would, should have helped me a lot because uh, it was there already, uh, and so I was very regretful that day that I forgot I did not bring my book. So I hope next time we come here, we have our book so that we may immediately verify if need be. And so if you have your Bibles with you, and uh, you will see there some, like for example, in the first, uh, the first verse, in verse 53, if you just show that up, there's a bracket. Actually, in some translations, it's a double bracket. And they, there will be a footnote under or um, at the bottom of the page, which will say that this does not appear in the early manuscripts or something like that. And um, so, how do we treat this? Well, today we will discuss this passage, we will study this passage, we will preach this passage, not on the basis whether or not it should be in the Bible or it should be in the other places, because, by the way, some of this passage may also fit, let's say, Luke chapter 21, verse 38, you know, so which is a different author. So if, you, uh, if, if uh, we see a manuscript that it was in Luke chapter 21, verse, let's say after 38, just allow me to go to that part and just read the passage before it. You know, so it says in verse 37, Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and open the night on the mount that is called Olivet or the Mount of Olives. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. And then we have this passage. Can you please put that up? They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of... So it may fit there as well in, uh, in verse 53 of John chapter 7. And in some manuscripts, it appeared... Uh, not here in this part, but in other parts of John chapter 7. But whether they would appear in the different Gospels or not, that is not our main concern. Our main concern is that we are studying this. We are preaching this because it does not contradict the Gospel. Meaning to say, because it reveals the grace of Jesus Christ. And it is in alignment with the whole Bible revealing the heart, the grace, the mercy, the love of Jesus Christ, particularly to a sinner just like us. Then that is the basis why we are preaching this and why we are studying this. 
So let's pause for a while and just pray and just commit this time to the Lord. Lord, we thank you that all scripture is inspired by you. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God would be adequate, would be complete, would be perfect, so that the man of God would be equipped and to be able to do every good work. And today, Lord, we entrust that you allow this to be in this part of the Gospel of John, that out of your sovereign will, we are now in this part, and we are about to study this. Lord, we ask that you reveal to us the very reason why it is in our Bibles today, though there is a that information that this could have not been in the earliest manuscripts. Yet we entrust and we trust that you will, as you are sovereign God, reveal to us the very reason why we need to study this and apply the lessons, the principles, the precepts, and the truths out of this passage in our lives that we may be able to do good works, and that we may be able to give you glory and praise. And so, Lord, this is our prayer today as we study in detail this passage. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So having said that, let's go to John chapter 7. Let's start with verse 53. They went each to his own house. Remember, they just attended the Feast of Tabernacles. In that Feast of Tabernacles, they stayed in the tents. And now it's finished. So they, now, they're now, they now went to their own houses. So, but Jesus, in verse 1 now of chapter 8, went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So, the account involves a woman caught in adultery. The Pharisees and scribes, this is the first time that we will encounter now this group of people, uh, the scribes, challenged Jesus to give his position if they should stone her according to the law of Moses. Now the Pharisees, together with the scribes, put Jesus in a predicament, or in other words, a test, or if you still want to extend this, a trap. So there was a trap that was laid down to Jesus because they want to charge him, to accuse him of something as a basis so that they will now bring Jesus you know, to justice and perhaps they now have a valid warrant of arrest and so uh, charge a particular crime uh, to Jesus. So let's read verse, verses, three to verse, verses 3 to 6. Verse 3 says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, 
adultery in our jurisdiction, meaning in the Philippines, adultery in the Revised Penal Code, Article 333, is a crime against the state. So everything in the, in the Penal Code is a crime against the, the nation, it's a crime against the state, it's a crime against the government. Now, adultery is something unique or something quite different because though it's a, it's a crime against the state, the crime is committed against persons, particularly the spouse of the one who is an adulterer. So it's a crime committed against uh, a person. That's why it's called a personal crime. And so the state cannot sue the adulterer. It's the, the, the victim, it's the aggrieved person, aggrieved spouse who can uh, file a case against the adulterous husband or the adulterous wife. Now, it's adultery because it's committed by the woman, primarily. Now, so, the elements of this is that there's a married woman and that uh, he had a sexual intercourse with a, with a man that, he, that is not her, her husband. So, this man may be single or this man may, may also be married. And this man knew that this woman is married to another person. And so that completes the element of the crime and it is punishable in our courts with prison correctional. Sorry for the term, it's six months to six years of imprisonment. Now, according to Jewish law, it is punished by death meaning it's a capital punishment. It, 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 uh, their law imposes capital punishment. So under this law, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you would go to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, Deuteronomy 22:22, it says here, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so both of them, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. So it's, concerned, uh, it's, it's considered as, uh, as evil. And in Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10, if there is a man who commits, this time it's more specific, adultery with Another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So according to Jewish law, the punishment for a person or persons, because it takes two to tango, it takes the, the man and the woman to be involved in adultery, to be put to death. And in their law, it, it is by stoning. And anyone caught, meaning under their, their standard of evidence, there must be two witnesses. And it's a very high standard because these two witnesses should be able to see them in the actual act of committing uh, adultery, meaning they must have seen them doing sexual intercourse. 
So it is not just a presumption. Oh, you just came out from one room. Or maybe they saw them in the bed together. So it's not, it's not that. It's a, it has a very strict standard. So that those who are caught in the act, so that's the, that's the requirement, that's the element. They must be caught in the act. And these two witnesses should be the first to cast the stone. If not, the, the two, the only the two of them. So they, they are, because they're witnesses, they're attesting to the fact, to the truthfulness of that act, hence they're going to stone them to death. And that is according to their Jewish law. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. You know what's, you, what's tricky about this? They did not bring the man. It's only the woman. So just imagine the woman, because she was just, she has just been caught. Maybe bakat. Tawel lang yung suot niya, or siguro kung ano man lang suot niya dyan. She was placed in, uh, caught in the adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, they said to Jesus, remember Jesus was teaching to a crowd who was listening to him. So they said to him, teacher, out of respect, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. And then verse 5 now in the law, meaning in their Jewish law, Moses commanded us, to say them as Jews, to stone such women. So what do you say? So we may consider this as something that is extrajudicial, meaning outside the court, also outside an administrative court, an administrative body or quasi court. No? So it's not in the courts. So it's just in the streets. It's just outside the temple. So they're asking Jesus his legal <laughs> opinion. And so this, they said, this is the very reason to test him. Why is this a test? Why is this a trap? Because if Jesus did not consent to the stoning to death, Remember, they cited the law of Moses that the punishment imposed in this woman caught in adultery is stoning to death. So if Jesus did not commend and did not consent to that, he would be seen as contradicting the law of Moses. So they will now have a charge, an accusation to the people who are listening to Jesus. Oh, the person you're listening to cannot be trusted. Why? Because he violates the law of Moses. So how can we trust him? How can you listen to him? If he says that uh, we should violate the law of Moses. So that's one thing. And then the other, if he consented, Jesus would now contradict Roman law. And with this, you know, if Jesus said, uh, okay, uh, let's Let's kill the woman. Let's stone her to death. Then he would contradict. Jesus would contradict the Roman law. And they will now have a, an accusation, a charge. And now they can bring Jesus to Roman courts. 
because they have a basis and they have a lot of witnesses there. Those are listening to Jesus with them and the woman who committed adultery. And so that was the trap. That was the test. That was the predicament. Now, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus respond? First, he intentionally did not answer. He did not answer the question directly. So what the, the, what, what's the question? What do you say? Now, Jesus, or teacher, this woman committed adultery. We caught her. Now, in our law, we should stone her to death. So what do you say? Instead, Jesus started to write on the ground with his finger. The Lord knew that the question was meant to trap him. You know why? Because it's not about justice. Because if these scribes and Pharisees are after justice, then they should also bring the man along with her. And so Jesus knew that this is a trick that they're up to and that their intent was to, well, catch him violating either the Jewish law or the Roman law. And either way, the scribes who were, by the way, experts of the law and the Pharisees would have now something to accuse of him. So how did Jesus respond to the different question? So remember, there's this trap. What is this, this trap about? If Jesus says, okay, let's not stone her to death, then Jesus was violating the law of Moses, which says that she must be stoned to death. If Jesus says, okay, let's stone her to death, then he's saying that we're putting the law in our hands and that is not allowed by the Roman law. It should be the Roman law who should uh, try them. And by the way, just to give us an idea why most Bible scholars would say that this fits this part of the scripture is when we go back to, uh, to a portion of the scripture, and this was discussed and this was preached to us last time in John chapter 7 verse 50, it says there, Nicodemus, he who came to him before, remember they're having this discussion, oh, why did you not arrest Jesus Christ? Oh, because uh, Jesus Christ was speaking great, no? His, his teaching is different, and we cannot arrest him. So, uh, Nicodemus says, verse 51, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it. In other words, Nicodemus was saying, before we arrest Jesus, before we accuse him of something, of a crime in particular, we must apply due process first. You must hear him, you must investigate more. And here in this particular case, that was not the intent. It was not the intention of the experts of the law to try and to apply due process. And so how did Jesus answer? How did Jesus respond? 
the Pharisees and the scribes, as they persisted in extracting an answer from Jesus. Jesus took down, wrote something. The Lord focused this answer against self-righteousness. After which, he once again bent and wrote on the ground. Let's look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, And as they continued to ask him, uh, perhaps continued, the, the, the word continued, something to do with kinulit, no? continuously, badgering, uh, persistently, asked him to answer their question. Eventually, finally, Jesus stood up and said to them, Please take note of what Jesus says to them because this is commonly misquoted or commonly misapplied or commonly used in, in a situation where it should not be primarily applied and hence, well, out of context application. So let's listen, let's read, and let's look at how Jesus and what Jesus said to them. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, we go back to their law. Who should stone them to death? Who should throw the stone? The, the witnesses. It could be that they really did not witness the adultery. There is someone and did not bring these witnesses along with them. So no one will be able to throw a stone to her because the primary witnesses are not there. Now, how do we interpret this? How do we understand this? First, is this without sin among you pertains to general sins? Does it pertain to other sins? Because what is being tried here is adultery. And Jesus pertains to let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Or is this this particular sin involving adultery? Another question is, what I've said, is it, is Jesus asking for the witnesses? Because Jesus knew that the witnesses are not there because it should be that the witness should also, or the witnesses should also bring the other, the paramour, the, the adulterous man as well. So, sometimes this is misused. Uh, in, a, in a gathering saying, no, uh, okay, uh, since all of us are sinners, then we don't have a right to judge another person. That will be difficult, especially in the judiciary system, because the judge, for sure, being human, must also have committed some other sin or some other crime for that matter. And so, because of that, he, the judge, or she, has no authority to judge another sinner or another criminal or another offender. And so that will be a problem in the legal system because no one will be able to impose and to judge someone based on a standard. And hence, that will not apply in such instance. Now, verse 8, and once more, he bent down. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground. So twice it was mentioned that Jesus stooped down, bent down, and then wrote on the ground. Now, this is the only passage in the whole Bible, particularly in the New Testament, where Jesus 
was mentioned to be writing. That's why some uh, scholars, some, well, uh, Bible students really would want to be, they're, they're curious. Oh, what did Jesus write? If you want to, to know, no, how is the handwriting of Jesus? Was it in, in ano ba, cursive ba? Or is it uh, parang yung font available sa, sa mga, uh, sa computer? No? Aren't you not curious? Hence, there now would have some much speculations as to what Jesus wrote. So how do we treat this? Simple. The text did not reveal what Jesus wrote on the ground. Meaning to say, we don't know. And we should not know. And um, not because it is irrelevant, but because it's not important or material to know what Jesus wrote. But here's what Bible scholars speculate or say. Perhaps because of how it was, it was written, the usage of the writing, he wrote on the ground, it meant that it was, the, the writings were specific. Meaning, it's not doodling, doodling, doodling. You know, the doodling, you just draw something out of you know, whatever, abstract uh, figures. So it was intentional on the part of Jesus. And so, perhaps, they speculated that Jesus wrote specific sins that deserve severe punishment, capital punishment, according to their Jewish law. So what are these? He might have written the following, because these are the, the sins, specific sins, that would also deserve specific or severe capital punishment. So what are these? Theft, seduction, negligence, Blasphemy, trespassing, striking parents, idolatry, false prophecy, causing injury, and all forms of sexual immorality. And because they're close to each other, meaning, meaning they have seen, meaning the scribes and the Pharisees have seen what Jesus wrote there. And let him who is without sin who is not a thief, who is not a seducer, who is not negligent, who is not blasphemous, trespassing, striking parents, idolatrous, false prophecy, causing injury, and all forms of sexual immorality, among you be the first to throw a stone at her. But again, we don't have that in the Bible. So how do we treat this? We don't know. Third point, no condemnation. One by one, they left from the older to the younger. Perhaps the older, because they're older, they may have done more of this. And then the younger. And no one can claim that they were sinless. Only the woman and Jesus remained. So Jesus asked the woman where they were. And if anyone condemned her. And no one did. So what did Jesus tell the woman? Jesus said to her, neither do I. Not just that, 
Jesus says, sin no more. Verse 9, but when they heard it, what did they hear? What Jesus just spoke, what Jesus said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So what does this mean? Either they cannot claim that they were sinless, or they cannot claim that they have seen as witnesses that this adulteress really committed adultery. Verse 10, so Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. The very reason why most Bible scholars would say this should be in this portion of the gospel because it revealed the heart of Jesus. Compassionate, loving, merciful, and gracious. Why? Because the condemnation, the moment we don't, we don't put our faith on Christ, we are already condemned. In fact, the earth is already condemned. And that the final condemnation will happen in the judgment day. And he, he, Jesus also says, interestingly, from now on, sin no more. So take note that this crime... It's not just a crime. Adultery is not just a crime. It was a sin. It, Jesus confronting her, telling her that what Jesus did is a sin. And hence, with regard to adultery, or perhaps with regard to general sins, repent. Do not sin anymore. The Son of God showed mercy to the woman caught in adultery. You know, sometimes we mistakenly understand or believe that sin is a sin once it was caught, once you are caught, once it is, once it is exposed. But sin is a sin the moment it is committed. So whether it was exposed, whether it, you were caught, we are caught, whether people knew it, it remains a sin before God. So, Jesus did not condemn her to be stoned to death, but instructed her to go and sin no more. It's another way of saying that she needed to repent of her sin of adultery. As we close, how do we apply this? We're given here, and as you have your copies, several applications, but allow me to just focus on certain a certain application where we can apply the facts, where we can apply the actual situation and apply the actual principle in this particular passage. So what do I mean? First, you are a father or a mother. You are a parent. Or perhaps you are a growth group leader. Or perhaps you are uh, a discipler. Or perhaps you are a church leader, an elder, uh, a deacon or deaconess, or a pastor, or perhaps you're just an ordinary person. And someone brings to you someone who is who has just confessed 
that he or she may have committed some sexual immorality. Or a person who committed those just came to you openly because you are a trusted person, you're a leader, you are some a parent, a concerned citizen, no, and you are you go to church and you study the Bible and they think and they believe that they you can help them and so they they come to you with this problem. They just committed an adulterous act. Or let's just say it's not an adultery. By the way, if it's committed by a man in our jurisdiction, it's called concubinage. And so someone comes to you, let's say, with negligence. No, I neglected reading the Bible. I neglected, uh, well, the spiritual disciplines. Or perhaps blasphemed God. Oh, I put the name of God in vain. I cursed. Or someone, no. Hit his or her parents. Perhaps not physically, but shouted at his or her parents. Or, per, or has committed idolatry. Bowed down to an idol or bowed down to, to some other small letter G gods. Or caused injury to another. So if you look at this, well, the Bible says they are sin. Example, gossip. They're not sin against the state, right? They're not sin against the government. So you'll not be, you'll not have a, someone files a, a case against you and uh, you'll be brought to the court and you'll be imprisoned for, for what, for negligence, for striking, perhaps for causing injury, you know, or maybe for sexual, or let's just say, this is the scenario, LGBT, a gay, a lesbian, transgender, comes to you openly with this sin asking you what will I do with this sin so it's not literally a test you know, but it's somehow a test of how you will respond to such circumstance and so how do we answer how do we respond? How, how do we settle? I suggest and I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that we use as a filter the gospel. We use the gospel to filter and to answer and to respond to this person. So, what do I mean with the gospel? First, we recognize that we are also sinner. We are also wretched sinners. We are a sinner. We have sinned against God, and we have sinned against the state, and we have sinned against another person. And so we are not different from that person who is coming to us with a sin, a particular sin. So what do we do? We humble ourselves Perhaps we write down the sins that we have done in our past or that we are, perhaps we are still committing today as a reminder who we are. We are sinners saved by grace alone. And so we write that. I'm a sinner. I also did this. I also committed this. I was also negligent. I, was also, I also trespassed somehow. I stole. Well, 
not just literally, but uh, maybe intellectually. Someone owns this copyrighted material and I use it uh, as if it's my own, as if it's my original idea and concept. And so I was presenting this in a paper, I was presenting this in my Facebook account, or I was presenting this to other people, perhaps deceiving them so that they will think that I'm good, that I'm great, that I'm knowledgeable, that I'm smart and all. Yet what I'm using was not from my own, it was from another person's intellectual property theft. Or it could be a recipe of another person. Or it could be a, a business concept of another person. Or it could be the answers of my seatmate. So we remember that we are sinners as well. Next, we are saved through Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone. And so why should I condemn you? Why will I condemn you? Why will I? <laughs> this is very controversial. That's why the, the best example is something that should not warrant uh, that person to be arrested or to be brought to, to the courts or to justice, but something that is seen from the Bible, yet it's not a crime. So what do we do? We share and we proclaim the gospel to them. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. I've committed so many sins before. Yet I trusted God. I surrendered my sins before Him. I repented of my sins. And the Word of God says that we are called, we are elected, we are chosen. And the moment we believe in Him, we will not perish, but we will have everlasting life. For someone who repents, he will or she will be forgiven. So we receive forgiveness, we receive grace, we receive eternal life, we receive new life, we receive a second chance so that we can praise God and worship God and serve God and give Him the glory. That is how we can apply this passage. Whenever we are confronted with such a test, with such a situation where someone was presented to us also with a sin. It's different, no? If it's a crime, the dynamics would be different. But if it's a sin, it doesn't require you know, the person to be, to be reported to the authorities, then our response is that like of Jesus who stooped down and reminded the people that everyone has sinned against God. So Jesus showed mercy to the woman caught in adultery. He did not condemn her to be stoned to death. Why? Because the condemnation will happen in the judgment. So instead, he told her to go and sin no more. So we proclaim the gospel to the person by faith and by repentance, we are saved. And this is the significance of Christ's suffering death. 
and resurrection. And so we invite this person to repent and put his or her faith before the Lord and settle this with God. And then we encourage that person to walk in holiness. And for someone to be able to do that requires constant exposure to the Word of God, to the fellowship of believers, and to have someone walk with that person so that this person will become mature and so that at the end he would be, she would be sanctified. So brothers and sisters, this is what we submit to you today, that we do not condemn other people because we are sinners only saved by grace, by the grace of our Lord alone. Allow me to share with you a piece of poetry, a poem written by our senior pastor entitled, Neither Do I. Shame and fear mix within the heart, all seeing I who can outsmart. One day all will face the judgment, his will there shall be fulfillment. But then, that is in the future. Let's gaze at the present picture. We all deserve condemnation. That's the sinner's situation. There is a blessed assurance, not by accident or by chance. It's neither do I condemn thee, a blessing we're allowed to see. Yet it includes the other part. By grace from sin, we must depart. Through the new birth, we can receive. In his name, Jesus, we believe. Shall we all stand and close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed your word is a lamp unto our feet. It's a light unto our path. We live in a darkened world. We admit that we are sinners only saved by grace. One of these days, we will encounter, or we may encounter, this situation where someone comes to us with a particular sin. Someone is presented to us who has confessed of a particular sin and asks us what to do, what to say. Remind us, Lord, of this passage that you allowed to be in this part of the Gospel of John so that today we're able to study and understand and later on, by your grace, apply. And we will be reminded of how Jesus responded. He stooped down and reminded the people that all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And so we technically don't have the authority to cast stone and put to death someone because we too are, are sinners. 
Yet by your grace, you have forgiven us. Through your work, Jesus, we are forgiven and we have received eternal life by faith and through repentance, by your grace alone. And so at this moment, with these situations, not to condemn people, but to proclaim the gospel that they too with their faith and their repentance they have the opportunity and the privilege to be forgiven and in the process receive eternal life remind us Lord to filter in these situations and use as a filter the gospel that when people ask us about the gospel it could be a test it could be to trick us to, to test us to trap us give us Lord the, the wisdom and the discernment and to be able to answer accurately through your word and we could do this by studying your word individually or perhaps together as a group as a, or as a family so that we'll not be easily discounted we'll not be easily tricked but instead we will proclaim your gospel with faith and accurate with accuracy thank you lord Bless each and every one of us throughout the holidays. Thank you for the opportunity to rest, the opportunity to, to travel for some of us and for, to visit the graveyards of our loved ones and be reminded that life is short and death is sure. Give us opportunities, Lord, as uh, we visit, as uh, people would visit us and we have these reunions with the family to be able to proclaim the gospel not for our own sake, but for theirs and for your glory alone. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless us all. See you next Sunday.